Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. Welcome to the Nourish with PCOS podcast. I am your host, Sam, and I am so happy that you're listening today. Today's episode is all about diabetes and diabetes management. But before I get into today's episode, I have to give you an update on my mouse situation. A few episodes ago, I shared that we had a mouse that was eating chocolate in our pantry, and my husband thought it was just me being an intuitive eater and getting shavings off of Cadbury eggs. (laughs) But we put a camera in our pantry, and we, we did see a little mouse, and my mind went in a million different places. I've never had to deal with a mouse before. So the first was catastrophic thinking of, are there like 5,000 mice in our walls? And I didn't realize it. That comes from working in a school system where we actually had to shut down a school because of a rodent infestation. That's like how that got in my mind. And then also I was worried about trying to catch the mouse and then releasing it and separating it from its family. And then I had an idea to take the mouse down to the greenway. But then there are a lot of snakes down there. So there was just a lot going on in my mind about this poor little mouse But anyway, I have some sad news to share about the mouse. The mouse is no longer with us because I accidentally left a bag of croutons open in the pantry and it climbed inside and we did not realize it. We could tell from the odor in the pantry that probably something happened with the mouse and we tore apart our pantry looking for it. And then we found it. So that is the end of the mouse story. Rest in peace, little mouse. I'm still a little worried about its family, but just wanted to give you a little bit of resolution there, even though it wasn't the ending that I had hoped for. Okay, switching gears into today's episode. I sat down with Danielle from Food Freedom Diabetes She has a wealth of information about blood sugar management. People with PCOS are more likely to develop diabetes. We actually, I'm going to tell you a statistic, not to worry you, but just to give you some context. We see that about half of people with PCOS will develop prediabetes or type 2 diabetes by the age of 40. I think there's so much that goes into this statistic, access to medical care, proactive and preventative medical treatment, so many things. And I would be curious to see how this statistic evolves now that there's more education and awareness around PCOS. But I think talking about blood sugar management and diabetes is an important part of PCOS management. So I invited Danielle on. We had a really great conversation. We talked about the advice to eat low carb, 
We talked about new injectable medications. We talked about glucometers, a device that you can wear that will tell you your blood sugar on an ongoing basis. I really appreciated her insight and input. If you didn't know as well, I used to work in a diabetes center before I started my private practice. I was a clinical dietitian, and I spent half of my time inpatient and then half of my time outpatient doing diabetes education. So a lot of people that I work with or who come through my program have elevated blood sugars, and talking about blood sugar management is definitely a a big piece of my program. So I thought it would be important to do an episode about it, and I really hope you enjoy it. Hi, Danielle. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to chat with you about all things diabetes. Can we start out by having you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm Danielle Bublitz. I'm a registered dietitian. I live in Southern California. And my current business, Food Freedom Diabetes, originated really from my passion around helping others with diabetes. Um, when I was 16, I was diagnosed with type 1. You know, I, it was a pretty shocking diagnosis in my family because nobody else had it. But I remember a couple months prior to being diagnosed, I had a really bad flu. Like I was sick for a month. And my stepmom's an ICU nurse, and she was actually on maternity leave with my little brother. And she was kind of watching me as I was, you know, showing all the signs of diabetes. I was extremely thirsty. I was using the bathroom a lot, super lethargic. And I kind of just thought, oh, it's summertime. I'm hot. That, that must be what it is. But she told me, like, I want to have you fast overnight and check your blood sugars tomorrow morning. And when we checked my fasting numbers, they were 500. <gasps> oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. So thanks to her, I was able to get my diagnosis before it could have been something super serious. I know a lot of other people have had stories of diagnosis that have been pretty extreme. So I was lucky in that sense. But I, from that point on, I was really trying to learn how to manage a condition as a teenager. I had struggled with binge eating prior to that, you know, a lot of diet culture, you know, I was put on diets from like an early age. And so navigating diabetes and the diets I was trying to continue, it was so hard. So when I became a dietitian, I just still really held such a a strong compassion for others with diabetes. And I wanted to go that route. So after finding intuitive eating and learning about that for myself, I started a business. And that's what I do now. I help others with diabetes learn how to manage their blood sugars without dieting or making weight loss a focus. Would you say in your dietetics education that it was pretty weight centric? Or did you have any exposure to anything that was more weight neutral or weight inclusive when you were in school? Yeah. So I got really lucky. I went to Chico State, which is in Northern California, and they actually had a health at every size class. And my counseling course, my professor actually assigned us intuitive eating. So there was exposures of more weight neutral care. I'm not going to say mm -hmm. the whole program was weight neutral because mm -hmm. definitely a lot of weight centric information. 
you know, my medical nutrition therapy class, things like that. Like I was still learning that certain conditions needed certain diets and certain calories, but I thought that exposure to health at every size was so interesting and just kind of trying to learn how eating disorders can impact people in all size bodies like that had not been something I was aware of. I kind of just held a very stereotypical view of disordered eating and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because most people who have eating disorders are in larger bodies. Absolutely. We have this picture of somebody who visually looks malnourished as somebody that Mm -hmm. has an eating disorder or anorexia. And that's not representative of the average person. Yeah. Yeah. That eating disorders just do not have a look. I think Mm -hmm. what I learned, I remember in my medical nutrition therapy class, the the section on eating disorders was literally three slides. It was anorexia, binge eating. And I actually found my notes recently as I was trying to like clean stuff out. And it's like, anorexia, you know, you see an image of a smaller body, and then binge eating, you see a larger body. And Mm -hmm. I just think that is so, you know, misrepresentative of eating disorders. And the fact that, you know, there are many people in larger bodies that struggle with anorexia. So, Mm -hmm. and especially binge eating, that can also be on a size spectrum. Definitely. Yeah, that's a really important point to bring up. I also think it's super interesting that you learned about health at every size in school because something that I feel, it just kind of bothers me is, I don't know if you're in any of these shared spaces with other dietitians where people get into debates about like health and weight (laughs) and things like that. And I feel like it's very clear when you're looking at the comments, like in these Facebook groups, if there's a long thread, when you're looking at the comments from people who are not supportive of health at every size, you can tell that most people don't understand what health at every size is. Or the yes. nuances. And I'm like, how sad is it for our profession that people are already, we're supposed to be like staying on top of trends and being educated about things. And people have such strong opinions about something that they may not even be informed about. It's really disappointing to me. Totally. Yeah. It's just kind of like, it's like a knee jerk reaction. It's like, but do you actually understand what health at every size is all about? Like, their thought is like, how can you, how can you say that this person is healthy with the way it's like, listen, we're talking about accessible care for all Mm -hmm. bodies. We're talking about being able to help people where they're at and that health can be achieved at any size body, but that like, I don't know, that outside perspective looking in. Yeah. I've seen it a lot in those Mm -hmm. threads and I feel like I have to take a deep breath because I don't know, it's like the fat phobia going through the comments is Mm -hmm. intense. Yeah. I I always like to bring this up anytime I'm interviewing a non-diet dietitian. I like to talk about, you know, kind of how you learned about weight inclusivity and health at every size, because I think it might be helpful to listeners, to people who aren't dietitians, just to kind of hear these conversations. Yeah. And I think too, like, even though I had like the exposure when I was in Chico, I feel like it was like a seed that was planted. Like I listened and I was like, okay, 
But I think even for myself, I didn't understand how that could be implemented when, you know, I'd go to the next class and it's like, okay, my exam is, what do you give this person? Take the carbs out, do this, do that. You know, it's like, I went back to the rigid kind of structure after learning about like health at every size, intuitive eating. So yeah, I think for me, it took working clinically for a few years to see how much it impacts people in all size bodies to not get proper care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I actually, I just recorded a episode with Melissa Landry and she made the statement mm-hmm. that the most harmful thing that somebody could experience with their health is just not having accessible medical care. Which absolutely. Is true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned in your own journey that you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Can you share what exactly diabetes is and how it's diagnosed? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm for the sake of time, I'll just explain type 1 and type 2. There are multiple forms of diabetes. So, with type 1, what's happening in the body is that your pancreas is no longer producing insulin. And so the reason we need insulin is when we're eating our foods, digesting, and it's breaking down into glucose, insulin is able to help glucose get into our cells for energy. So if your insulin is not being produced, that glucose is sitting in the bloodstream. So you're tired, you know, you're feeling those symptoms of just like fatigue and your body is trying to help you get that energy, but the the glucose is just sitting there. And so for type one, because there's no insulin production, that's why you need to take insulin injections or sometimes people wear the insulin pumps. Mm -hmm. So that's type one with type two, your body's still producing some insulin, but the issue is it's not being used efficiently. So -hmm. there's a resistance happening in the body. And so even though, you know, you're going about your day and the blood sugars are coming into the blood, you know, into the body and I'm sorry, the glucose is coming into the body and trying to get into the cells, it's not happening efficiently or quickly. And so the blood sugars remain high. So that's kind of the difference between the two of those. And usually what happens when somebody's getting diagnosed, a lot of times if you're getting your yearly checkup and they're like monitoring like your hemoglobin A1C, which is just a three month average of blood sugars, if it's between 5.7 and 6.5, that's considered pre-diabetic. And once it goes past that 6.5, that's when they classify you as having diabetes. Thank you for explaining that. And I hope a a takeaway here is that type 1 diabetes is completely different from type 2 diabetes. Totally, totally. Different, like different treatment is needed because again, no insulin production, the injections have to come in. Mm -hmm. And for anybody listening, most people with PCOS who experience diabetes are going to be experiencing type 2 diabetes that Mm -hmm. this underlying insulin resistance has progressed for years and years and years. We really see that like at the center of PCOS. Although Mm -hmm. we do see a link between PCOS and 
type one diabetes from like an autoimmune standpoint. Yeah. Um, So that's it. There definitely needs to be more research around that too. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So a lot of people listening want more flexibility around food, but they're also worried about their numbers. They're worried about their health. Insulin resistance plays a role in PCOS symptoms. So they're worried about their (sighs) symptoms. What advice do you have around this? Oh my gosh. It's so hard. I feel like it's probably one of the hardest things to to like mentally get to a place where it's like, I want to feel more peace with food because when you are seeing your blood sugars going up, it's like, it feels like the cause and effect, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I did this to myself. This was wrong. It's like guilt and shame come through. So there's a lot of mental stress that happens, but I would say, you know, working through flexibility with food is knowing that you can have all foods in your diet work for you in a sense of like helping with blood sugars. And some ways that you could try is pairing carbs, like pairing the carb sources with protein, fats, and some fibers. You know, when you're pairing them together, the fat, protein, and fiber can help slow down that carb breakdown. So that can be a way that you can keep some of those carbs if you're trying to practice flexibility there. But honestly, even with other foods, like let's say you're going out to eat and you see a dessert on the menu that you really want. I think it would be better for you to give yourself that opportunity to enjoy the moment and know that when you're eating a meal and having a dessert, that can also be helpful too, versus maybe Mm -hmm. just waiting and waiting and waiting, maybe like skipping a meal and then having a dessert on its own. Mm -hmm. So When I say like practicing flexibility, I think there's a lot of different tools you can use. But at the end of the day, what really needs to happen is practicing permission. So giving yourself that permission with food and maybe like identifying what are some of those rules that are like making you nervous to practice flexibility. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think if somebody has a bunch of rules, that also makes a lot of sense because when somebody goes to the doctor or they're trying to get some sort of blood sugar education online by looking things up, especially in the PCOS space, (laughs) yeah, you not only do you have all the blood sugar management stuff, but then you also have some of the misinformation about gluten, dairy, soy, and everything with PCOS. So it can be really overwhelming. Totally. And, you know, thinking about that, because I I had somebody else bring up to me recently, you know, a friend that was diagnosed with PCOS and given some pretty garbage advice. And they had asked me like, they don't, they don't know what to do since they, you know, have type two and PCOS. And yeah, it's like, when I thought about it, it's like, I get that. Like, you're just trying to do what you think is right for your health. And so mm-hmm. when you see those blood sugar numbers go up, it's stressful. So I say, give yourself an opportunity to, you know, practice different ways of flexibility. It doesn't have to be everything at once. That's, that's probably overwhelming, but yeah, think about some of those rules that have come up, give yourself opportunities to implement tools, try pairing the foods, maybe even go for a walk after a meal. Cause you know, movement can be helpful Mm-hmm. for glucose and you know getting that those muscles to contract and bring glucose down. So there's different tools that you can put in your toolbox as you're practicing flexibility, but you know working through those rules takes time. 
Yeah, it definitely does. And I like how you said, just start out with something like one thing at a time or smaller things, because I do think, especially in the non-diet space, it can be really easy for people to be black and white or like all or nothing. And if you're, if you're coming from a place where you have been restrictive and you want to ease up on things, just all of a sudden letting go of any sort of structure or food rule you've ever had is probably going to be overwhelming and backfire. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the non-diet space, it can feel wrong. Like for, from an outsider looking in, it's like, it can feel wrong to have any structure at all. And Mm. I definitely think structure is okay. Structure is not diety. It's more so creating a space that is safe for you as you're learning to focus on that flexibility. So yeah, I think it's perfectly okay. Little bits at a time exposures. They're essentially like exposures, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're exposing yourself and you're seeing how did this experience go? Okay. I noticed my blood sugar went up. That's okay. This is just a snapshot in time. Are there other things I can do? Can I be nice to myself in this moment and know that blood sugars can just have a mind of their own? Like how, how can we just like bring in more of that kindness in those moments? Mm Because usually we go straight to blame. Yeah. And so much of moving away from dieting, whether or not you have a medical condition, whether or not you have diabetes, is just treating yourself with compassion and kindness instead of judgment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually had for my current group, I had a psychologist come on to speak I can send you the link to her Instagram. She's so cool. And she specifically works with people with diabetes. And she brought up, you know, how helpful self-compassion is for blood sugar management. Like it's key. Being able to be more compassionate with yourself is actually much more helpful for finding that balance with your blood sugars because you're giving yourself opportunities to learn. I know within myself practicing intuitive eating, I find it helpful, but to hear it from someone that's researching it and that uses that in her practice was so cool. Yeah, definitely send me that link. I want to yeah. check her out. She's that so cool. amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the advice to eat low carb or cut out carbs yeah. for blood sugar management? Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> I hate it. I don't like it at all. And it's the first line of advice that mm-hmm. people get that are struggling with insulin resistance or, you know, blood sugar challenges. So here's my thing with low carb. So carbs are our brain's primary fuel source. We're cutting that out. I'm wondering how much satisfaction are people getting in their meals to begin? And also when we're not getting carb sources in, okay, there's a higher chance of more low blood sugar episodes. And also when people are doing more of like keto diets, so even like more extreme than just low carb, you know, protein and fat still breaks down into some glucose later on. It's very minimal effect, but if we're doing high, high amounts of other food groups to keep the carbs out, that's still going to have an impact on your blood sugars too. So I'm not a fan of low carb. I definitely understand that when people are trying to figure out what works best for them, 
there may be low carb products that people genuinely like, and I would not shame you in that. But I'd say overall, low carb diets for people with insulin resistance is not super beneficial. Yeah. And so much of this podcast is helping people lean into their own lived experiences. And I think when we are working with clients and we observe many people's lived experiences, what I see a majority of the time is trying to eat low carb is not very effective. It's not easy to maintain. It affects your social life, your mental health, and all of these things are really important too. Yes, absolutely. Like I had talked to a client recently that was telling me in the past that she went to her brother's wedding, didn't have any cake, really only ate the salad there. And it's like, all she remembers from that event was being hungry. (laughs) And that makes me feel so sad. It makes me sad that people miss out on these moments in life because of a diet that they're trying to sustain, which is just not sustainable at all. So yeah, I, I definitely think there is, you know, some of the impacts on blood sugars, like the hypos, all that, but there's also that emotional and mental part of it where it's just not something that can be done long-term without having to give up moments. Yeah. And I think this is a very big conversation in the PCOS space too, because so often health is talked about in one way, but we know Mm -hmm. that like social connections and your mental health and how you participate in life, like we can't, we don't have anything to weigh like blood sugar management against those two things. And so I think people like really pay attention to that tangible number, that health outcome, but like so many other things can impact your long-term health too. Yeah. And yeah, definitely. And I think that's, that's something I wish was talked more, you know, when people go to the doctor's office, like, why is it that doctors just go straight to, have you tried going vegan? Have you tried Mm -hmm. cutting (laughs) carbs out? Have you tried? It's like, what about like, what does your daily life look like? You know, okay, you work. Do you have like five minutes that you could stand up and maybe just walk, you know, outside? Or do you have like moments where you can stretch? Okay, how's your sleep? Sleep's definitely going to impact insulin mm-hmm. resistance too. Like when we don't get enough sleep, yeah, the cortisol levels will increase and the insulin resistance can build. So even being able to focus on some movement and sleep, which is helpful for more than just blood sugars, it's like they're not discussed. We go straight mm-hmm. to the food. Yeah, that's that's such an important point. Stress as well. Stress management is another big one. I know I've had yeah. a client in the past who had diabetes and he actually saw from checking his numbers on the weekends, his numbers were way lower than during the week because his job was so stressful. Yes. And I think we honestly, I think with how busy people's lives can be and like challenging, like financially, whatever, you know, whatever's going on. Yeah. Stress is going to have a huge impact, but I don't feel like people are really being asked that in a mm-hmm. doctor's appointment. Right. Yeah. No, I I don't think so either. Well, 
I know we're not going to do a deep dive into medications because we are we practice within our scope of practice. But the medication options for blood sugar management are really evolving. And we have a variety of medications now. I'm sure newer medications will be coming Mm -hmm. out that are more injectable type medications that can be used for blood sugar management. And some of these now are being being used for weight loss, even like they're basically taking the same medication and like (laughs) getting it approved for like the purpose of weight loss and things like that. So for people listening who aren't familiar with these, like Ozempic, Wagovi, Monjaro, those types of medications, I'm curious of what your thoughts are about this, especially working in the diabetes space. Oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts about, I feel like I've just been ruminating over this for like such a long time Mm -hmm. uh, and constantly learning too from like my own clients. But yeah, I think it's been really disheartening to see, you know, so these like they're GLP-1 type Mm -hmm. injectables, Manjaro, Ozempic, all that. And for people with diabetes, there's a lot of benefits that can come from that for their A1C and their blood sugar management. So it's just really disheartening to see the amount of backlash one coming out. And then also two, just like seeing celebrities endorse like, Oh yeah, I'm living like my best life. It's like you're taking a weight loss injection and you Mm -hmm. have a lot of privilege and, you know, so my thoughts, let me try to like compartmentalize my thoughts. So (laughs) Okay. So first off, I think one of the main issues that I'm seeing with these medications for weight loss is, you know, there's a lot of supply shortages for people with diabetes that have, or, you know, blood sugar management, you know, I've seen they're not able to get their refills. You know, they're already pretty expensive. Like one of my clients was telling me that it cost them like $900 a month Mm -hmm. for that. Sometimes these are not covered. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the price is super high, there's supply shortages. And to be honest, you know, with like the weight loss part coming in, it's a little sketchy. Some of these like med spas that are prescribing Mm -hmm. it, it's like, you need to be under medical supervision, because some of these side effects are intense. Mm -hmm. And for weight loss, what I was reading is that they are prescribing it at a higher amount. Yeah. And so that's problematic because some of the side effects, you know, GI distress, malnutrition, pancreatitis, Mm -hmm. definitely should not be used for anyone that has a history of pancreatitis. There's also a black label on the box because of the risk of thyroid cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just feel like there is a lot that we're still learning about these medications and being used for weight loss in specific and not being supervised or I don't know, it's just, it seems sketchy and dangerous in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I'm really glad you brought up the differences in the dosing One of my concerns is I think a lot in the medical community, weight and health are talked about as the same thing. But when we dig in really deep, we know that they are two separate things. Yes. And when we're like in the PCOS space, when I'm talking about somebody's health with PCOS, I'm talking about 
their androgen levels, their degree of mm-hmm. insulin resistance, whether or not they have disordered eating, yep. their mental health, anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. sleep quality, like so many things. Yeah. And it concerns me when somebody's going to the doctor and their quote unquote health is only being measured by their weight. Oh. Especially when we talk about the side effects, because from what I'm seeing in my understanding, I'm not a pharmacist or a doctor, but Mm -hmm. at lower dosages, these medications can be really beneficial for PCOS. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's not losing enough weight, then it seems like they're being encouraged to really increase their dose a little bit to the point where it's difficult to tolerate. And I'm like, well, what... Did you see your labs improve at the lower dose? Like what outside of weight, like what is the holistic picture going on here? So that's something that's really concerning to me. I was just talking to- So frustrating. Yeah, it is really frustrating. I was just talking to another dietitian and she was saying that she went on a bachelorette party and that one of the girls on the bachelorette party couldn't get out of bed because she was on one of these medications and her her side effects were so bad but she no. was like at least i lost like x number of pounds no and it just makes me feel so sad that yeah. you know i want people to have autonomy and to take a medication if they feel like it's going to help them but like how are we defining health and how are we really evaluating whether a medication is helping or harming you Absolutely. And I think what I've really been learning is just like how like nuanced this topic is, because mm-hmm. a lot of my clients, like when Mindy Calling was like in the news and all that for using Ozempic, things like that, like a lot of my clients were saying, like, I feel ashamed for using this now, like mm-hmm. for my diabetes. And it's like, we had to talk about that. Listen, this is like, totally different. This has been, you know, GLPs have been around for like 20 years. And if it's something that's helping you with your blood sugars, that's amazing. And there's nuance because of some of the side effects. If it's not a livable situation for you, there's other medications and other things we can look at. So yeah, totally frustrating to see that those things are being compared where if the, you know, with PCOS, if they're not losing the weight, suddenly we're increasing the ozempic mm-hmm. it's like, or increasing Manjar, whatever it might be. It's like, I don't think we're measuring this correctly because you're allowing somebody to experience so much discomfort so that you can see the scale go down, which mm-hmm. is not actually helping them. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I definitely don't want anyone listening to feel ashamed or that they're being judged if they've explored these types of medications. And there's going to be a drug development meeting for PCOS in November. Oh, cool. As of right now, there's not an FDA approved drug for PCOS. And that is so wild to me. But I do fully believe that these types of medications will be part of the conversation with getting like an FDA approved drug. I just think it's the intention behind using it. Mm -hmm. And you brought up a really good point too about the medication shortages. And I see a lot of doctors like on TikTok argue that Mm -hmm. being at a higher weight, I'm not going to use the O word, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, well, this is a medical condition too. So who's picking and choosing which medical condition gets the medication? And I'm like, well, first of all, we could do 
a whole podcast series yeah. about yeah. whether or yeah. not being at a higher weight is truly a medical condition. We could look at all the messed up ways that came about, but also yeah. the foundation of believing that being at a higher weight is a medical condition comes from the idea that somebody's at a higher risk of developing other health issues like diabetes. So I'm like, mm-hmm. you're saying the concern of potentially developing diabetes, if that's what you are choosing to lean into, mm-hmm. is the same as actually having diabetes and needing a medication to manage yeah. blood sugars. This doesn't make any sense to me. Not at all. Yeah, I think there's a really good maintenance phase episode on this too. Just like obesity. And oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, you can. I You're totally fine. Uh, you're fine. Can I pause so that's yeah. not in there? I don't. Mm, I don't say that to clients. It's to- it's think- also totally okay to leave it in there if you. Whatever you feel comfortable with. Okay. okay, I just felt really fired up for a second, but yeah. I know in maintenance phase they were talking. I mean, even with like the BMI scale, like how that changed like overnight, and suddenly people mm-hmm. were in a certain category. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah. I I definitely think. There's like a whole like tangent that people can go down as far as like, well, this should be used because they're at this certain point, but it's like, that's not actually addressing any blood sugar issues. It's not addressing, Mm -hmm. like we're looking at the lab values. It's like, what is actually going on for this person? But we're just focusing on this outside factor that's not actually impacting Mm -hmm. the development of diabetes or the development of PCO. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, when we talk about insulin resistance with PCOS and inflammation, which are really the two core pieces of PCOS, we see in research that both of these occur independent of weight. And so I just think it's kind of backwards to bring everything back to weight. It doesn't serve people very well, I feel like in practice. And I think it really adds into like the weight stigma too, where people don't even want to go to the doctor's office. And, Mm. you know, when it comes to getting diagnosed with diabetes or maybe even PCOS, it's like if you're not getting your labs checked because of the fear of what your doctor is going to say or a medical professional, it's like you're not getting the care you need. And Mm -hmm. that that's not fair. Yeah. And I see that a lot in practice too, where when somebody thinks they are developing higher blood sugars or they notice like a difference in their health or symptoms, I see people want to step back and kind of like avoid medical care at that point because they're worried about what that conversation is going to be like when they do see their provider. And it's anybody listening. I just, if you can take anything away from this episode, like you deserve respectful healthcare. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been kind of cool in the, you know, health at every size community, like being able to find endocrinology wise, like Dr. Dodell, everything. Oh, I love him, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, I've met a couple of people with diabetes that live in New York and have been able to work with him. And I was so curious, like, how is that experience for you? And one of them was sharing with me, she basically found out that she was misdiagnosed with type two diabetes. And she had been living with type two for like five or six years. And she actually had type one and a half. Oh, wow. And the reason yeah, but she wasn't getting the testing she needed. They were just telling her lose weight, even though she had an eating disorder. It's like, 
she started going to Dr. Dodell and getting that supportive care outside of focusing on the weight really helped her to get the treatment that she needed. So Mm -hmm. it's amazing what can happen. Yeah, I think dieting and diet culture is like a distraction, I think, from getting to the core of what's going on. And I think that's a perfect example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of hype in the PCOS space about continuous glucose monitors. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen this in your space, but it's to the point where like companies are offering to send them, they're offering to do like a sponsored campaign for continuous Mm -hmm. glucose monitors. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think this conversation is really nuanced with PCOS because we have people that have insulin resistance, but normal blood sugars. And then we have people with prediabetes and type two diabetes. So when do you feel like a continuous glucose monitor is appropriate for somebody with PCOS and what are some of the pros and cons? Yeah, I feel like with continuous glucose monitors, it's very tricky because even for somebody with like, let's say they have type two, I mean, depending on where your mindset is at, having a monitor where you're seeing your blood sugars, like 24 hours a day, it's like Mm -hmm. all the data is going and you're getting notifications, all that. Yes, it can be so, so helpful for blood sugar management, but it can also be stressful. It can also become a fixation. So I would say for PCOS, I would want to understand maybe like the mindset around it and like where Mm -hmm. the person feels like they're at. But if they are maybe noticing like their A1C is starting to increase and they're maybe getting a little closer to that diabetes diagnosis, it could be helpful to kind of like have a, a look and see what that's like. But also, again, back to the mindset. Is it going to be stressful for you? Is your insurance going to cover it? Because they're not cheap, which is why the sponsorships kind of drive me nuts. I'm like, Mm -hmm. can we just get, let's just sponsor everyone with, you know, actual blood sugar issues. So yeah, definitely. It's kind of hard to say, but I would say if you're noticing that A1C, maybe nearing that point of like a diabetes diagnosis, then maybe it could be helpful just to assess like, what things that are going on for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I love how you said looking at somebody's mindset and like for somebody that has a background of a, an eating disorder or disordered eating, it's very easy to shift that fixation from weight to something else, whether it's yes. a plate diagram, counting carbs, monitoring blood sugars. And I've actually seen this quite a bit in practice of where it was really harmful for somebody to be monitoring their blood sugars yes. on a very frequent basis. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm really glad mm-hmm. you brought up that aspect. Yeah. Have you heard or seen any of the research that? says that if you have normal blood sugars, that a continuous glucose monitor isn't accurate? I have heard about that. Yeah. I think there was, there was a, I feel like this past year something came out and I was just super intrigued because I see like NutriSense, like there's a couple TikTokers that are like really popular, no diabetes, but they love showing their blood sugar spikes. Mm -hmm. So I think when this research came out, yeah, that, that it wasn't accurate. I need to look into that a little more, but I thought that was very interesting. So it's like, okay, 
So they're wearing these monitors, they're displaying what's happening, but is it actually benefiting them if the numbers aren't accurate? Or, you know, it's like, if they were to simply go to the doctors for their yearly Mm -hmm. physical and have lab work done, maybe that would be a more beneficial marker for them. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know a ton about that research. It's something that I had heard too. And then another one of my colleagues, who's also my friend, that's a diabetes educator. She was sharing that, I guess she was sent one of these and she was wearing it and she noticed that the numbers were high and it was concerning and her mom actually has diabetes. She was at her mom's house and used her glucometer to check her blood sugar and realized the numbers were completely different. Yeah. And yeah. Mm-hmm. it. I just wanted to bring it up because even though this episode is about diabetes, I think a lot of people who have blood sugar within normal limits but have insulin resistance might be listening. And I think it's important to bring up some of these things. Totally. I mean, again, I think for myself, getting a continuous glucose monitor totally changed how I was able to manage my diabetes. You know, it made things a lot easier for me. But There are some major cons for people that aren't in a diabetes range. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it can come with fixation and stress. And I even had one of my clients tell me this past week, like, I don't want, like she has type two diabetes, but she's like, I want to break from looking at this. So looking at numbers can be exhausting with a history of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also think it should be important to mention where you said that it had really helped you. I used to work in a diabetes center and, you know, the need to monitor your blood sugars when you have type 1 diabetes and you're taking insulin is a little different than type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes. And yeah. I I did experience that in the diabetes center that for people with type 1, it really was the norm to have a continuous glucose monitor and a pump and everything just so that you're not having to stick yourself so much and things like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like I even remember, you know, the first year that I was diagnosed, it's like, cause I was still in high school. So I would like go into the nurse's office. I'd have my glucose monitor, get my insulin vial out. And it's like, there's been a lot of improvements that make things easier for somebody with type one to kind of go about their day and not feel Mm -hmm. so disrupted with all those tasks. But yeah, I, I think with type two, it's very dependent. I know Dr. Dodell, he spoke for my group back in the fall time. And he was saying that something I thought was really interesting is there's a function where you can look at like your time and range. So rather than looking at every specific number that somebody gets looking more at a percentage of like, okay, research is showing if you're 70% in range, that's great. Mm-hmm. And I know 70% in like the academic world is like a C, <laughs> but, which is like, I always tell my clients, I'm like, I know, I know you, and this is great. You're doing a great job. So we don't need to have a hundred percent. So for anyone with PCOS that is thinking about a CGM, I would just say, really consider, you know, where your mind is at and know that getting some lab work done can be great. And maybe even starting with a glucometer versus a CGM, you know, Mm -hmm. they're more affordable and you're able to choose when you're looking at it. So I don't know, lots of things to think about. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing up all the different things to consider. And I I see them everywhere, but I don't hear people having conversations about them. So, Man, yeah. well, to kind of close things out, you've already given some helpful nutrition tips. If there is like one actionable thing that somebody could do leaving this conversation to help them manage blood sugars, what would that be? I mean, I would say eat consistently. I, I think so, there's a lot a of one. things. There's a lot of things that you can be doing, but I would say number one, it's like make sure that you're giving yourself the opportunity to have consistent nourishment because giving your body that energy it needs can also be really helpful for blood sugars. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you said that because there's so much advice out there in the PCOS space to fast. And so mm-hmm. I think people mm-hmm. feel Same really diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I definitely nourish yourself properly. It, it goes a long way mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. I think that goes back to, to like really leaning into your own lived experience and how you're yeah. feeling. And, you know, I, <laughs> There's there's so much diet advice out there, but Danielle, I'm sure you see it too. Like when somebody is fasting or skipping meals, especially breakfast, like how that can impact them throughout the day. Yes, definitely. And there's actually like research that shows that skipping breakfast in the morning can negatively impact your blood sugars. So mm. make sure you eat your breakfast. It's It's very important. Well, thank you for that tip. Thank you so much for being here today. Tell everybody where they can find you if they want to connect and how they can work with you. So people can find me. I'm mostly on Instagram at Food Freedom Diabetes. My website's super easy, foodfreedomdiabetes.com. So if you're you know, looking to connect, maybe want some tips for blood sugars, come and find me on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. Have an awesome day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.